welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. My name is Tim Morris, and I'm an investment specialist for the Emerging Market and Asia-Pacific Equities team here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Sonal Tana. Sonal is a portfolio manager and two-decade veteran within the EMAP Equities team based in London, and she's a member of the group responsible for our core emerging market strategies, including the GEM opportunities and GEM analyst strategies. Welcome, Sonal. Thank you, Tim, for having me here today. Of course. Over the next 45 minutes or so, we'll touch on a range of macro and more industry-specific topics across a broad array of emerging markets. So with that, let's jump right in, Sonal. You spend the majority of your time speaking with our research analysts and directly with emerging market equity companies. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing and hearing in the market right now? Sure, Tim. So big picture, the way we are seeing markets evolve within our region, within emerging markets, is actually quite similar to what's happening in developed markets right now. It's interestingly atypical to other recessions. So obviously with other recessions, historically, we've seen cyclical to lead the recovery, but this time given issues because of COVID and associated restrictions, et cetera, we've seen sectors such as e-commerce really adapt and be the quickest to recover. We've actually seen earnings upgrades in this sort of sector. Healthcare is another one. And more recently, you've seen a reasonable rebound in materials, obviously, industrial sectors also starting to rebound. Now, regionally within emerging markets, we are seeing a pretty strong bias towards North Asia, and we can talk a little bit more around what the drivers of that are. Other regions, Latin America, emerging Europe, et cetera, are still lagging. Obviously, they've had sharper economic contractions and are struggling due to the lower oil price as well, but we are starting to see perhaps some stabilization in the data. And once again, similar to what we're seeing elsewhere in terms of sectors, it's the laggards really are sort of your typical value cyclical sectors, financials, energy, et cetera, the ones that are really struggling. So that's just a very big picture view to share with you today. Certainly very helpful. And I think particularly for the research analysts, it's certainly an interesting time to be covering the industries and stocks that they look after. How are they feeling about the outlook and what they're hearing from their companies under coverage? Yeah, it's not easy being an analyst in this environment, I'm sure. Now, at the start, sort of when we were back in March and April, given the intense volatility that we had, but also there was far greater uncertainty as it was rather difficult for any of us to really judge how long the lockdowns would last, how severe they would be. And also, we weren't sure about how different governments across emerging markets would be willing and able, really, to react. So earnings visibility was obviously quite narrow. At this point now, I feel, based on my conversations with analysts, we have more of a view on what the base case assumptions are, and therefore the range of outcomes that have gotten extremely large is now more sort of sensible and narrowing. But also, infrastructure, we are finding it easier to differentiate the winners and differentiate the businesses that will continue to thrive. I think a crisis certainly helps management teams differentiate themselves. Certainly, we are seeing that come through in terms of our analysts' views and conviction levels. 
if I may, I think what's interesting also is how this period has really accelerated some of the changes that were happening already. And within emerging markets, it's, again, like I mentioned, e-commerce had been the quickest to recover. This is no surprise. This is an industry between the disruptive end. There was clearly a trend change happening. This has been accelerated. And the conversations we're having with our analysts and the companies we look at are really sort of reaffirming the fact that this is something this is not going to go away, even when we get on top of things like COVID, for example. Another example I may share is something that we've seen, particularly on the technology side, companies like TSMC, they were leaders going into this and they've come out even stronger, I think, both in terms of their own emerging market peer group, but also against their developed market peers, their US competitors, etc. They clearly are able to stand out as well. So that's Again, there are certain areas of the market starting to see a lot more of confidence returning to both companies and particularly to us as investors and analysts. It's certainly very interesting. From interaction that even you personally have with some of these companies over the past few months, maybe first sticking within the tech and e-commerce space, any other businesses that are jumping out as being particularly surprising or having very strong results? I'd say one of the, I think, very rather encouraging surprises, if I should even call it a surprise, has been how even the bigger, more established companies, and Alibaba is the one that comes to mind, have been adjusting and responding particularly well. In fact, they just had sort of a series of investor days because they did it on a virtual format. And I think what was extremely encouraging for me personally, and certainly we've seen a lot written about this, is their cloud business will be turning profitable within the next 12 months, which is hugely encouraging. And this is, again, you know, these businesses have been incredible growers over the last few years. We ourselves were forecasting, you know, we've been very pleased to see the ecosystem develop. And it's been extremely encouraging, even in this challenging time, how they're continuing to do that. So that's been incredible. I think China as a whole, just stepping away from e-commerce for a minute or from technology and the disruption thing for a minute, China as a whole has been, I think, what we're seeing on the ground, talking to both our colleagues who are on the ground there, but also to companies that we look at, we are seeing a very nice recovery coming through. I think that's a pretty good reminder to the rest of us of what recovery from COVID might look like or what normality in this new normal world might look like. And this is actually happening. Obviously, some sectors are doing better than others, but encouraging even sectors just travel and domestic tourism is starting to see a pickup. One of the hotel companies that we speak with, they expect things like hotel demand to be back to last year's level already by the end of 2020, which I think is hugely encouraging. So you are seeing sort of quite a nice pickup in a lot of places within China. CapEx has been lagging. I think services consumption has been lagging a little bit, but we would expect to see that also pick up over the next few months as the economy continues to come out of the COVID hit as well. If I go on to maybe share with you a couple of other parts and bringing together what we're hearing from some other sectors, financials have clearly been hit extremely hard in all parts of the world. We are starting to see, again, as we emerge from lockdown, so some activity levels rebound. Within emerging markets, I think 
India is a good example. The virus is far from defeated, but speaking with HDFC, which is a home loans business that we've been long-term followers of in India, speaking with them, they do expect volume levels to go back to a normal run rate as we get towards year-end. And what's interesting to me there is there is obviously a much bigger disconnect between what we see as gradual improvement versus sort of the valuations that these sectors are trading on. Similarly, some of the conversations we're having with banking franchises in Mexico, clearly they acknowledge that the rate environment is certainly more challenging than it has been historically, but well above zero, the negative rates that we see in some parts of the world, and actually are looking forward to seeing, you know, partly because of very strong and decisive action from central bank, etc. We are looking forward to seeing provision reversals and recoveries coming through over the next 12 to 18 months. So with the negative impact, clearly earnings took a substantial hit. Um, you mentioned, with the exception perhaps of some names in e-commerce that were, were beneficiaries of some of what's transpired across the majority of stocks and sectors within the asset class. As we're starting to see, as you mentioned, better earnings visibility, are we seeing the signs of recovery in earnings? And how are forecasts starting to look going into next year? Yeah, so I've had to take sort of consensus numbers that have been forecast for the asset class for 2020. At the moment, the numbers are sort of minus 13% in dollar terms. Obviously, a lot of that has already happened in the first half. And actually, from where we are now, we are starting to see some sort of stability. So earnings are maybe not being necessarily revised up in the very, very short term, but we are seeing some stabilization. Looking out, obviously, to 2021, we are seeing actually quite a reasonable, in fact, quite a big move. We're seeing a 31% earnings growth being forecast by the street. So arguably, a lot of the street is starting to build in the signs of recoveries that they're seeing. And particularly, I think the interesting thing is when I look at the sectoral breakdown of where that earnings recovery would come from, it's much more evenly spread out than the narrow positive earning in the tech and e-commerce space and healthcare space that we've seen this year. So assuming we get this to happen, and we can obviously talk about some of the risks to this, but assuming this happens, I think I'm quite encouraged with how we are set up looking into the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah, I think we'll come on to risks in a second. I'm curious, maybe this is one of the risks that investors, particularly in developed markets, have grown concerned that perhaps things are priced for perfection. Do we share concerns about emerging markets? And I know valuations across a broad range within the asset class at the moment. Yeah, so I would say an aggregate valuation for emerging markets is clearly rebounded from the very attractive entry point that we got back towards the end of March, early April. At this point, we're sort of in no man's land. We are not at those cheap levels, but we're not expensive relative to the history of the asset class. We are really bang on average valuations for emerging markets. Now, clearly a lot hinges on, I think it makes sense to go on to the risks of what might derail this, a lot hinges on the risk of any second COVID wave and any further economic fallout from renewed lockdowns, etc. So that is the risk out there that we, I think, all of us in all parts of the world have to contend with. But I think China is a good example of what if you are able to contain 
the virus and avoid a full lockdown is at least appears the model for the best case scenario until you've got widespread vaccines and proven therapies to deal with the virus. Thinking about other risks in the asset class, I think within emerging markets, sometimes geopolitical or even just political risk is fairly inherent. Though to some extent this year, COVID and the associated recession has drawn some of the attention away from some of these hotspots. I think that U.S.-China relations, which have been much spoken about for the past few years now, continue to grab headlines, while some other markets, particularly in Turkey, which is flirting with the crisis yet again, I think is less on the radar of international investors. Could we maybe just spend a couple of minutes thinking about and talking through those situations and how we see them playing out? Yeah, U.S.-China relations, I think, have been tense or have continued to sporadically come back up, even though we had some sort of tempering down over the last couple of years. But it's clearly something that is, as emerging market investors, we continue to be aware of. The companies we speak to are certainly thinking about their long-term growth trajectory with that backdrop that this is a new normal. This is clearly centered around tech, even though other sectors do get pulled in. And so some of the conversations that we have been having with companies is around how companies are able to think about differentiated customer bases and move away from having an over-reliance towards a single customer, particularly American customers only, and importantly, also on the other side, how they're diversifying their supply chain. And so we're pretty encouraging conversations with companies. I think one of the companies, Shenzhou, that is a big apparel manufacturer and a supplier to companies like Nike, etc., have been very just recently, but over the last few years in terms of diversifying their supplier base and particularly their production bases as well as to where their factories are located. So you're seeing a lot more of that continue as well as to some degree, at least in the portfolios that I manage and speaking with our analysts, we spend a lot of time also thinking about companies that are possibly overly exposed to a single smartphone maker, which is based in the U.S., so Those are some of the tensions that are underlying. But obviously, this is something that's big and it's impactful in many ways across the portfolios. The Turkey question that you raised, and now that's obviously somewhat more contained. And I would actually say that what's been happening in terms of slower growth, et cetera, is just exposing what has been a continuation of poor macroeconomic policies and market concerns around the lack of independence of the central bank really come through. We have been talking about this for a number of years, maybe it was only as recently as 2018 that we had the last sort of Turkey crisis as well. So you do have this issue, but the problem is that every time that it's not resolved and it sort of cracks up papered over, you end up with a potentially bigger issue further down the line. So I think Turkey is, you know, while obviously there are geopolitical tensions as well, that are making the situation worse, it's the economic fundamentals that really would be of concern to us. And so for us, in terms of our positioning, we are relatively cautious on something like Turkey, while despite US-China tensions, China has a much broader range of investment opportunities for us that we can still find long-term interesting growth opportunities without having to be overly concerned about 
trade tensions. Samuel, perhaps something that I suspect is on the mind of quite a few of those clients dialed in today is the U.S. election, which is now four weeks away. How are we thinking about the bearing that it might have depending on the outcome? Maybe first, since we were just talking about U.S. and China relations through that lens, but also any other areas where we think it might have a bearing on the outlook for emerging markets more broadly? Yeah, I mean, I'm by no means a political expert, but I'll try my best to give you my view as I see it for emerging markets. So firstly, I think the market consensus is that regardless of who wins, the U.S.-China tensions or protectionism is on the rise. To that degree, it may play out in different ways. So obviously with President Trump, it's been much more around tariffs and about trying to resolve situations through that. It may be in a different setting. It's in a Biden setting. It may be more around things like access to specific industries, opening up of markets and around the human rights situations might come into play. But I think it's safe to say that the market or at least the companies and industries that we look at are prepared for effectively what could be a continued environment of higher than historic tensions between the two countries. Now, in terms of the impact of the elections, I think it's going to be ultimately basically getting through the elections, I think is going to give the market a level of comfort because we've already priced some of this in, regardless of who the winner is, we sort of feel that we can put it behind us and start to move forward. I think China also can maybe come back to the negotiating table, knowing a little bit more knowledge and clarity around who the decision makers will be and try and think about what to do going forward. So I would say that it would be almost better to have the elections behind us and then move forward, at least from a China perspective. And I think the other thing is that at this point, bigger factors like what is happening around company-specific factors, what is happening to uh, growth globally is going to be very important. So any further stimulus in the U.S. or that is stimulative towards global growth, I think will be very welcomed by emerging markets generally, where we're a lot more reliant on global growth picking up from the lows of this year. We've spent quite a time talking already about a variety of markets, but we haven't really touched on any of the more commodity-sensitive countries that I think investors associate a bit closer to commodities. And maybe if we could just share for a moment our views on Brazil and Russia. Yeah, so maybe I'll start with Russia. The issue there has been, number one, around the economic impact from the fall that we've seen in oil prices, because Russia is obviously a lot more reliant on oil prices. Now, actually, funnily enough, you know, Russian companies are actually at the favorable end of the cost curve in terms of lifting costs, because they benefit from the currency mismatch of having the oil price in dollars, and obviously their capex costs, et cetera, being in rubles. So that's one of the things that we think about when we think about Russian energy companies on a relative basis, and do see them in somewhat of a positive light. The other thing is obviously the impact that a weaker oil price has on some of these currencies, like the Russian ruble, and how that might translate through to things like inflationary pressures, et cetera, in the domestic economy. I think what we are seeing so far, again, similar to what I mentioned in terms of post-lockdown activity levels picking up, we are seeing that in places like Russia as well. It's going to be a little bit more challenging 
But the good thing is that from a fiscal perspective, Russia went into this in pretty good shape. So we've clearly had our fair share of crises in Russia. Historically, they've been somewhat better positioned from a balance sheet perspective at a country level and the companies, at least some of the natural resources, the miners and the energy companies would be relatively well positioned despite the fall in energy prices given their own cost basis. Brazil, it's been kind of interesting. Obviously, the virus impact has been pretty large on Brazil and we actually saw the market's been pretty volatile. We've had a very encouraging buying opportunity in Brazil towards the end of March, where valuations look extremely attractive. And more recently, actually, the focus has shifted towards the reforms and the difficulties politically in terms of getting those reforms through. But I do think, again, that what's interesting about Brazil is you are seeing, even through this, a very robust pickup in activity, not back to the same levels where we started, but certainly when we look at some of the particularly satellite data, et cetera, we look at and things like navigation app usage, car rental recovery, we're seeing a pretty good pickup there. We do think that the sort of reform negotiation is nothing new for Brazil. We've been seeing that over the last few years, the direction of travel is certainly positive. And lastly, from a opportunity perspective, we are seeing some pretty encouraging developments, both in the traditional sort of sectors, but also a lot of new economy companies also emerge in a market like Brazil. So from an investor perspective, actually, I think there are some good opportunities coming up. One question that we get a lot from clients about the asset class, and particularly given some of the headwinds from a performance perspective over the past few years for U.S. dollar-based investors is, do we think that that persists? And what role do we think that the U.S. dollar plays? And You mentioned already, particularly for Russia, but maybe perhaps more broadly for the asset class. Do we think that that's a trend that continues in the long term? So when we think about the big picture, when we think about emerging market currencies, we we think about it in terms of inflation differentials. And clearly, that does mean that you end up with emerging market currencies giving back a little bit each year, if you sort of think about it from a long-term perspective. But I think there is and clearly there are experts around the dollar and there's not being said in terms of the U.S. fiscal deficit and what that may mean for the dollar. I think for us as investors, a weakening dollar is certainly very positive for emerging market investors. That's unquestionable. But to be honest, even if you have a stable U.S. dollar, that is certainly a level we can get quite a positive environment from. Looking at our currency framework and our currency models, we don't emerging markets being extremely cheap right now, but there are certain areas where you are seeing signs of stress, and that would be countries with some more of the structural challenges around the economy, etc. So I would say something like Turkey, again, would be a good example where you are seeing the currency get a lot more attractive. But overall, I wouldn't say that emerging market currencies look particularly cheap at this point. They're probably slightly cheap to fair value. Sonal, thank you very much for both the time today and for the insights. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. 
The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase and & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash 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 global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Inc which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL, in Asia Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg. No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration Number Canto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth.
by JP Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 JP Morgan Chase and Company All Rights Reserved.